when you think of social media and politics, let's face it, good thoughts are not top of mind. Social media has not been good for respectable political discourse. However, a new project called Elect Curator, spearheaded by Marquette University, UWM, and the Northwestern Mutual Data Science Institute, is using social media data to understand voter behavior and what issues Americans really care about this election season. Elect Curator is a research project that connects students to learn about the political landscape in a unique way through data science. The project began this past January, and it uses a variety of data sources from social media to traditional polling methods and even political advertisements. I got a chance to sit down with the project leads to discuss this project and learn more about it and how it works. My name is Purush Papatla. I'm a professor of marketing at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I'm a co-director of the Northwestern Mutual Data Science Institute. And I'm Amber Wachowski. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University, and I direct the Marquette Democracy Lab. So talk to me about this really cool partnership between um, two great schools and Northwestern Mutual Data Science Institute about the Ella Curator and where they, how they come to be, what's the story behind it, you know, whose idea is like, hey, let's tackle this. So the Northwestern Mutual Data Science Institute is a partnership between Marquette University, University of Milwaukee, and Northwestern Mutual Company. Uh, it was born out of a, a conversation that the the executives of the three institutions had on the importance of data science for the region to grow the region economically and to bring talent to the region. So that's where it started. So the, the primary goal was to build talent, to train more students equipped with data science. One of the ideas that we had was that the elections could be a very good lab, if you will, where we could actually demonstrate the kind of talent that we are already producing at both universities. So the idea was that there's so many people talking on the internet, on social media, constantly expressing their opinions on things, literally every minute of the day. Could we mine into the data and get into people's minds and understand what they're thinking about different candidates, different issues and directions and so on. And that's like billions and billions of posts every day. But also thinking about you know, what these data actually mean. So Purush was talking about how you have lots of people posting on Twitter about the elections. Who are these people? Are these folks representative of the broader electorate? Are they amplifying certain issues, essentially speaking with louder voices in a way that might not actually reflect the issue priorities of the general electorate? So in addition to looking at social media data, we're also looking and comparing between what folks are saying on social media And what are the issue priorities and concerns of the broader electorate of voters? So we're also fielding our own nationally representative public opinion surveys where we're actually able to compare social media discourse to um, both closed-ended as well as open-ended. We ask people in our surveys, describe in your own words, what is the most important issue for you in this election? What are you not hearing from the candidates? And then the final piece is we're bringing in a lot of the campaign rhetoric So we're looking at the tweets that candidates are posting, but we're also looking at the political ads that they're sponsoring. We're looking at the speeches that they're giving, their debate performances, to get at what are the signals that voters are hearing from from the candidates and their surrogates. And so the broad project is to really think about the ebb and flow of issues, issue priorities, what's top of mind, what are the issues or the scandals or the events that are sticking Um, You know, if we look back to 2016, what we saw looking at social media discourse from that election 
was that, you know, things kind of came and, and went for Trump. But the sort of clear signal about Clinton and the email scandal and where's the server and all that, it just kind of persisted throughout the campaign. This election cycle, we're seeing kind of the rise and fall of many different sorts of things. You know, Trump's taxes or his comments earlier this year about um, about troops. But it's such a changed environment. We're seeing just the endurance of concerns about, obviously, the pandemic, concerns about the economy, concerns about racial injustice and inequality that have kind of they've just endured throughout the course of this campaign. I'm just curious, what is the the process of getting this data and how do you parse it out? Like, how do you parse out sentiment? How do you parse out emotions into data? Like, how do you do that? Like, what is it like, you know, how Facebook has the emoticons, angry like, do you do it that way? You like read a tweet and it says, this tweet is angry. This tweet is supportive. <laughs> like, um, I'm just really curious about the actual technical aspect of pulling, you know, data is like all about numbers. You're pulling in emotions and sentiments. Right. Let's take the text from tweets. Kind of, all right, well, what are people tweeting about? I mean, we're, we're looking at hundreds of millions of tweets that we're trying to process each week. And so we've essentially, we classify those tweets. And so we've done what's known as topic modeling, where you take text data and you're trying to identify what are the words that kind of clump or cluster together that reflect some sort of underlying construct. And then we use that to then devise a strategy to classify every single tweet that we're collecting. It gets tagged. This is a tweet that's about immigration. This is a tweet that's about the economy or that's about healthcare. And so we've created an issue tracker where you can actually see the ebb and flow of what issues Americans on Twitter are kind of uh, talking about. Um, so that's one sort of method. Perush can probably say a lot more in terms of the, the sentiment um, analysis. And so I'll turn it over to him. You caught it very well, Amber, in terms of how we are actually identifying what a tweet is about. But we are obviously going much deeper than that. We're actually getting to the tweet itself and understanding what the tweet's sentiments are. And the way we are doing that is by using multiple algorithms that have been developed over the last few years. So one example, actually, we talk about it on the, on the website. It's called Vader. It actually can take each tweet and read through the words and the context of the words and pull out the sentiment in the tweet. That's called polarity. And so we are reading all the millions of tweets, measuring the sentiment in each tweet and coming up with an overall measure of the sentiment in a bunch of tweets. So that's what we're doing for tweets. Now, turning to videos and ads, there are methods Microsoft provides and Google provides that can actually take the videos, read through the videos, and pull out each frame of each video and identify everything that happens in the video and come up with a summary measure of what sentiment in the video is. So we're using those methods for that. What have you learned during this process from uh, all this data, but more importantly, what was some surprising things that like made your eyes go, huh? I don't know if it's something that is so surprising, but that's something that talks to the part of data and data science. We're actually able to show that what you traditionally believe to be the red and blue divides actually show up in the data. So we're taking these millions of tweets, measuring the sentiment in them, classifying those sentiments by candidate and by state groupings. We're able to show that red states are more supportive of Trump in terms of the economy. Blue states are more supportive of Biden in terms of things like the pandemic and race relations. Overall, however, we also see, this is where the surprise comes in, that regardless of red or blue, 
So all the states, people tweeting from all the states seem to be seeing Biden more favorably on the pandemic and race relations and Trump more favorably on the economy. So those traditional wisdoms continue to show up in the data as well. So that's what we are finding. Full disclosure, I probably was somewhat of a skeptic thinking about who's on Twitter. We see surveys that say it's a really small fraction of Americans who are actually tweeting about politics. Kind of, are, are they outliers? Who are these folks? And so a question that I had coming into this project was, all right, we're following all this social media discourse, but is that really telling us what people care about in this election? And so I think the pairing of the social media analysis, looking at our polling data, our public opinion survey data, we've asked on the, on the surveys, you know, in a very open-ended way. So in a very authentic way that kind of mimics the ways in which people might just jump on their computer or on their phones and they're tweeting things off. In the surveys, we're just asking them, tell us a little bit about what you're concerned about. So we see a lot of alignment in, in, in a few areas. Um, I'll speak to just a few of those. The concerns about coronavirus, attention to the economy, concerns about healthcare, um, we see kind of resonating both on Twitter as well as in uh, the general electorate. We saw over the course of the summer uh, this kind of increased national sort of reckoning with racial inequality. You could just see it kind of exploding on social media, the amount of attention, the amount of discourse. But that was also showing up in our public opinion surveys. But then there are some weird outlier issues. So, you know, folks who are tweeting are they're consuming a lot of political information, a lot of political news. They're paying attention to politics. And so you see this sort of reactivity to the candidates and what they're saying. So to give the example, in the last month, we've seen a lot more tweets about China. Why is that? Well, Trump's running a lot of ads referencing China. A lot of the top Senate races across the country are doing the same thing. Folks in the debates, he's referencing it. You know, we've seen it kind of throughout the year. And you see on social media that people are talking about it, too, both in ways that are um, suspect or suspicious of Trump's rhetoric, as well as uh, people who are very supportive of the president kind of picking this up. But then when we go to the public opinion surveys, you're just not people. Are, that's not something that's really resonating that people are reacting to or really broadly aware of. So you see kind of this overlap, but also this disconnect. A growing um, connection, I'll just close here, that we're seeing is, you know, the concerns as this kind of pandemic recession plays out, this growing concern about how do people get back to work, you know, the concern about a looming eviction crisis, um, the fact that poverty rates are increasing. This is discourse that was, was somewhat absent a bit on social media but in the last month has really started to pick up. And I think that's also reflective of the campaign rhetoric, the ways in which these issues are figuring more prominently on the campaign trail, the trail as it is, right? If you've got Biden campaigning somewhat virtually. And in our surveys, when we ask people, you know, what are the things that you're concerned about or that you're not hearing enough about? Our survey in September said it was these kinds of issues. They wanted to think about, you know, what are the candidates going to be doing about economic hardship? And so now, now we're seeing the sort of campaign dynamics kind of aligning where the candidates are talking more about it, the, the sort of dynamics and the connections. If elections really are supposed to be a way in which the voter, you know, the average person has some influence about what government does, you know, the campaign matters too, because what the candidates say on the campaign trail shapes 
what they do once they're elected into office. Um, and so I think this is a really important piece about thinking about how our democracy functions. You talked about how you like you, you kind of broke out like the red and blue. Does the data show are we just as divisive as the news media is saying we're divisive? Or do you see we're actually more more similar in what we think and what we believe in? I don't know if you're able to answer that question easily because purely because of the fact that we're getting all of these little, little billions of tweets, right? Mm-hmm. We are mining through them. It's going to be difficult to answer the question of whether we are as divisive or not. But clearly, the red state, blue state, divide state. I mean, they're, 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 I mean, people are definitely divided if you mm. look at it that perspective alone. What I found, found surprising, actually talking about surprise, when, you, when Amber and you were talking, I just went and looked at our site because it was updated as of today morning based on all the tweets that came till last night. For the first time, more people are talking about Biden and the economy than about Trump over the last 10 months. So I don't know what that means, but things are shifting in that direction. So Biden is being discussed more in the context of the economy as well, in addition to him being brought up in the context of the pandemic and race relations. One of the interesting things is just looking at how the rhetoric on social media is really divided. So take the sort of, I'll just use the the sort of protests you know, following George Floyd's death, what you saw was essentially Americans reacting to this using very different language. You saw kind of the concerns about racial inequality trending along the same time that concerns about, you know, questions about crime and law and order, right, are also taking place. They're kind of going in parallel, talking in some Mm -hmm. sense, not to one another, right? There, we've got the sort of polarization. I mean, it's deep within within the um, the American electorate. So that's sort of um, one example there. On our surveys, we also ask and are able to divide the issue priorities between what Republicans, self-identified Republicans are saying and what self-identified Democrats are saying. And up until now, Republicans have tended to place much more emphasis on the economy. That's seen as an issue that was supposed to be working to Trump's advantage. The economy was quite strong, Mm. right, in in the beginning of 2020. And so Republicans are saying that's the issue that they care about. For Democrats, it has been the opposite. The the economy still figures, you know, is a top issue, but it's often framed in terms of the public health. And until we get the virus under control, the economy is not going to get, is not going to rebound. And so what Purush was just saying about this real-time analysis that we're doing is we're, we're in the, we've just been in the field with our third survey, but we won't have those data till later this week. But Purush is, is saying we're able to look and mine the social media data to get in some sense maybe these leading indicators that perhaps the, the train is shifting somewhat where Biden is gaining some ground on the economy vis-a-vis Trump. Talk to me about one of the things I'm, you know, people see in social media is the the bots, the trolls. So that know that gets part of your get, probably gets incorporated in your data. How do you um do you I mean parse it out? You tag it as as a bot or as a troll, the misinformation, like the the like someone says 5G is causing coronavirus. Do you like pull that out? Like how do you handle misinformation, bots and trolls? As of now, we are actually not uh, trying to tag and filter out what could be misinformation. Uh, and this, the rationale was very simple for us. It's, uh, it's, it's the fact that bots and people spreading misinformation are out there. 
they're talking about things regardless of whether we can stop them or not, spot them or not. And people in social media are getting exposed to them. So their opinions are being shaped by bots. So the question is, should you ignore bots? So given that people are being affected by the information coming from bots, we felt that we shouldn't take the bots information out. We should include that in as a holistic way of measuring what people's opinions could be shaped as. So as of now, we're not taking them out. But in the future, we probably should separate them out and see what the results could be and how they could be different. So one way to think about this is, I mean, we're, we're doing all of this real-time analysis and the sort of what's out on social media is part of people's information environments, right, as, as Purush was saying. But after the election, I think there will be these questions about just how prevalent was misinformation, kind of where was it directed? Um, we saw from 2016, for example, that about 4%, one estimate is about 4% of this sort of social media discourse out there was being generated by bots. Um, but it, that wasn't spread evenly across the electorate. So subsequent analyses showed that actually those things were being targeted to discrete sort of social groups or to, to folks within particular states. Um, and so that sort of forensic analysis, you know, that will be ongoing here. Um, I will say that it's it's clear that the sort of broader, I, you know, speaking as a political scientist, I do have concern about our information environment and how much misinformation is out there. I'll give the example, you know, I, I've referenced this public opinion survey that we've been fielding, where we've just been asking people in, in their own words, tell us about the issues that you care about, tell us what you're not hearing enough about. And I'm not saying that this was like a, a large share of the responses, but you definitely saw QAnon conspiracy theories kind of percolating through the data there. Um, and so I think there is this broader concern about what do our social media platforms do, the sort of algorithms? Are we able to address misinformation? I think this is a real key issue that it's here in 2020. It was on our, uh, it was brought to attention in the 2016 election, but I, I'm, I'm not seeing this issue going away. I think that we need to find a way to, to address it. Um, it. It speaks very much to the, to the health of our, of our um, democracy. So you have students involved. What role do the students play in this? Yeah, so this is a really probably for me the highlight of this project is the ways in which we've we've been able to connect with our students. So we've got a great research team of students, graduates and undergraduate students from UWM and from Marquette. From Marquette, some of the students, I had graduate students who were, you know, data science, they were computer science graduate students working on the code, working on the data visualizations, the analysis. But I also have a group of students who were undergraduates at Marquette who had never thought of themselves as somebody who could kind of use data and to analyze it, to make sense of it, to communicate findings to a broader audience. So for me, that's been a lot of fun to see the students bringing their, their knowledge about content and about, in this case, in you know, the dynamics of campaigns and elections they also are bringing their research knowledge. You know, the, so this broader question about we've got data and data's out there for us to analyze. But if we were just to kind of run it through our machines, right, our computers, and then we, we kind of say, and here's what it looks like. There, I will just say there's a famous paper um, from an earlier election season, which the title of it was like, I tried to predict elections using Twitter and all I got was this stupid paper. And, you know, so, so to have kind of a, a critical take on what these data are with the limitations of the data, thinking about the ethics, 
um, you know, it's why having a broad interdisciplinary team has been really central to this project. And I think that's one of the strengths of this um, partnership with through NMDSI between UWM and Anne Marquette. And I know Parush also has just a great team of students who've been so fantastic on this project. I, I have learned so much actually working with them. I, I must tell you, they are so determined, so driven. They have been really pushing the edge on the technology, right? So, and they're a multidisciplinary team, as uh, uh, Amber mentioned. One of them actually is a math undergrad with a marketing uh, MBA, uh, uh, focus in the MBA. Another one is a math major who's going on for a, math, a PhD in computer science. A third one is an information sciences guy. All of them went on to work at major companies. And one more, this is a fascinating story. He's actually an international student, he's a Chinese student. He's, he's, he's mining through the data and giving me insights on what the data says in which you are presenting. So it has been a joy to work with these people to actually see them grow and thrive from this project. And one of the students who worked on the project, this is actually a big success story for us. He went on to work with a major, major employer in the region. He's taken all these methods and they're going to start using the methods for their business and help the community. And that's exactly what is happening from this project. Can I add one, one quick thing on the, on the student side? You know, obviously our project, you know, faced a big, some hiccups here with the pandemic and having to move, you know, to a remote sort of setting. You know, early, before the pandemic, we were meeting together in one room, kind of pouring over the data and the code together. Um, and I think what I've really come away from this project is, I'm reminded of the importance of giving students these real world kind of research opportunities, whether they're graduate, but, but maybe especially as an undergraduate student. I think um, it's helping to kind of uh, build that sort of connection that students have to their learning, right, to their educational experience, that that sense of belonging, the sense of community, I think that we've built with this project um, is is a real strength that I I think it would have been there bef- before COVID, but I think COVID's just really revealed how how critical that is that we're giving our students these learning um, experiences and these opportunities. You mentioned you did measure campaign ads. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Did you see a correlation, the conversation shift when people do more the the effect? Like basically, can you measure the impact of the ads? <laughs> That's a very, very good and tough question, right? <laughs> uh, because uh, ads clearly are running all over the country, right? And are, they're running in different markets. Tweets and social media conversations are also running all over the country, and they're coming from all parts of the country. And at the same time, all the tweets and social media conversations are being driven by things other than just the ads, their interactions with their friends and family, what they're seeing on the news media and all that. So parsing out the effect of ads by themselves on the conversations is a tough but doable job. But we didn't I didn't we didn't tackle it in the project. Although Amber I think is trying to do that. It sounds like a startup yeah. idea, that's well, all. <laughs> I can say a little bit uh, you know about the dynamics between social media and the campaign communications through kind of the traditional 30 second spots. So you know earlier around the time of the convention we definitely saw from President Trump this sense that he had kind of found an issue that he could really drive home in his campaign ads. And that was kind of crime and, and law and order. And he started, you know, sponsoring these ads and making that kind of a central um, piece of his, of his rhetoric there. And you saw the reaction on social media a bit, but it didn't stick. It didn't necessarily resonate. 
Um, and in fact, he's pivoted since that time to try to find different ways that he's kind of talking and kind of explaining why um, the American people should be uh, reelecting him come, you know, just a, what, a week now. So that's an example. We're seeing just in the last couple of weeks, Trump, some of the Senate, um, tough Senate races in this, uh, in this cycle, uh, China is being referenced quite frequently. This idea of it's essentially almost like a scapegoat, trying to say, you know, this this is where the virus came from. Um, you know, it's it's really uh, it, for Trump. It's it's been used to deflect blame a little bit, but also Democrats are bringing it up in a way, saying, well, and is Trump tough on China? And you know, he's got these business ties. So we're seeing a sort of discourse again in ways that we haven't seen in the campaign environment since 2010. So in 2020, I would say, is another year in which we saw kind of China being being figured quite prominently. And so when we're looking at social media in the last week, all of a sudden we're seeing people talking about China um, all of a sudden. Why is that? Well, these ads are now running, too. What we do find is that uh, social media seems to be an incredible barometer to assess the stickiness or the visibility of specific comments that politicians make. So if Trump says something about China or the pandemic or Biden says something about the economy or race relations, you can bet that the next day it will show up in the social media conversations. The spike on the topic in the number of people talking about it, number of people sharing and retweeting it, number of people seeing it. So there's, a, there's definitely a tremendous correlation between what po- leading politicians say and the media say and what shows up in social media. The social media almost seems to be like a, like a mirror of what people are saying. And, and you can measure the importance of that based on the number of people are talking about. Mm. So if I'm an average person coming to a curator, elect, elect curator <laughs> site, um, how should I use this? You know, I just voted. How should I use this site? Just go to the site. Look at all the things that we're saying. These are all based on data, based on what people are saying and talking and, and sharing with the world on what they're thinking. It. To some extent, they can tell you where, perhaps, where the elections are going, but not always. But you should, they, they'll definitely give you an insight into people's thoughts and minds on the issues and elections. And, you know, sure. one of the, I think, um, fun parts of the website is that a lot of these tools are interactive. So you can go and kind of look at how particular issues, maybe it's the issue that you care about deeply. And you want to look at, you know, how much attention did this issue get? So I have students for example, who say, um, you know, climate change, climate change is the issue that they care about. And this question is like, well, how much are the candidates talking about it? How much are other voters talking about it? That's the sort of, you know, the the interaction, the interactive data that exists on the website. Um, Looking at the ways in which um, the net sentiment about Biden and Trump have changed and evolved over the course of the campaign is another sort of piece so I think that's one one advantage of, of the website is, is in some sense, it's we, we have constructed it so that people can go and, and play around with the data themselves and to zero in on the things that they care about um, and to think about how that resonates or not um, across the hundreds of millions of tweets that we've been collecting since the beginning of the year. We talk a lot about how Americans are divided, right, um, that we're deeply polarized. And so I think... That's true. We are. And you can see that in the data. But you also see overlap as well. 
the sort of things that that kind of unite us and maybe we not are not fully agreed on what should we do about these issues. Um, but they at least suggest the possibility for a more robust kind of democratic deliberation. So in some sense, I think these are just, it's, it, Perush used the word kind of a mirror. You know, if I'm thinking about, I'm using these data in my class, I'm teaching a class on campaigns and elections, and we're thinking about it kind of what, what, what picture is emerging of the American electorate? In what ways is this a mirror or not? And to have students kind of reflect on to what extent they see themselves in the data, I think has been, for me, that's been a helpful sort of approach and entry into this, um, into these data. What's next for this project? I mean, do you see, I, I personally, I can see like campaigns come to you and like, Hey, we want to work with you. And <laughs> like, like I see a, potentially industry a business out of this for campaigning in the future. <laughs> so, but what's next for the project? I mean, what's is it gonna end now or what's what's after election like? It's it's not going to end now. I mean it, maybe it won't continue at the same scale, but there are two things that I see coming out of this, right? Or might a few more things actually. One is that um there's tremendous potential for scholarly publications, right? Amber is a scholar, I'm a scholar. So we are interested in publishing these research approaches and results in scholarly journals to educate the world on our findings and our approaches. That's one thing we will do. The second thing that I've been thinking about, and I haven't even talked to Amber about it as yet, is that it would be very interesting once the elections are done to go back and see whether our analysis could have predicted the outcomes. Right now, we don't have any way to test our, uh, our analysis to see if they're predictive. But once the results come out, we can connect the two and see how good would we have been able at predicting the outcomes and then maybe refine the method for the next cycle so that we we kind of improve the process for whoever does it next time or maybe we'll do it next. And certainly some of our students, you talked about campaigns being interested. I mean, some of our our students may very well go on and work, you know, post-graduation for campaigns. Um, Campaigns themselves are in candidates and organizations this sort of data revolution that's happened in terms of moving beyond the public opinion survey, the number of, of organizations that are looking for students who have those skills that can help them parse and understand um, and how they can use that data to then shape campaign strategy um, is absolutely one thing that we're expecting you know, to come out of this project is that students will have these sort of skills. There's the political connection, but Prush also talked about the fact that these, these tools, these techniques these approaches have much broader applications as well, not just in the political world, but for a number of, um, of industries as well. That was Elect Curator Project Leads, Dr. Parush Papatla, co-director of the Northwestern Mutual Data Science Institute and professor of marketing at UW-Milwaukee, and Dr. Amber Wykowski, associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University and director of the Marquette Democracy Lab. If you want to learn more about Lec Curator, head over to our website at radiomilwaukee.org for all the details.